children uh, ages three to second grade and dismiss the children's church. I don't know about you, but I'm glad that God loves us the way that he does, the way he shows us. So have you ever thought about the stories of the Bible that they would make for good headlines? You know, the first chapters of Genesis show humanity on such a roller coaster ride that I truly wonder what the first hearers would have thought. And I want you to imagine with me this morning the following headlines ripped from the pages of the Bible. The highs and the lows. In Genesis 1, we have the creation of the world, and then man created in the image of God. In Genesis 2, we have man and, man and woman equal one flesh, you know, the first wedding. Then in Genesis 3, we see lows of the fruit of the forbidden tree is eaten and kicked out of paradise. Then you know, we see highs again as God gives them clothes in chapter 4, and the blessing continues part 1 as Eve gives birth to Cain and Abel. But again, the lows come quickly as brother kills brother and sin abounds. And those are quickly followed by the highs of Seth is born and people start to call on the name of the Lord. Genesis 5, we see the ominous and then he died over and over and over again. But you also see the righteous ones, Enoch, Methuselah, and Noah who will bring comfort, rest, and relief. In Genesis 6, we again see the lows is, and God is starting over, and the Lord regrets that he ever made us. And later in Genesis 6, we see that God will save a remnant as Noah's building a what? And in Genesis 7 and 8, there's the storm of the century. At the end of Genesis 8 and the beginning of Genesis 9, we see the highs of on dry ground, pleasing worship, and the blessing continues, part 2. You know, the first hearers might now be thinking that the hard times are behind Noah and his family. Things can only go up from here, right? But as we come to this morning's headlines, Fallen Hero and Humanity Exposed, we will see that man's sinful nature rears its ugly head again. The blessing that God pronounced on Adam and Eve and on Noah is still intact, but so is man's sinfulness that started in the Garden of Eden. But again, the roller coaster ride that is humanity's history continues. And by the end of our passage, we're going to see a curse, and we're going to see blessing. Two of Noah's sons will show that their father's righteousness and holiness has been passed down to them. And because they have emulated their father, they will be blessed. Which brings us to our big idea this morning, that God blesses those who are living holy lives. And we'll see what those blessings that Noah's sons receive, and also what blessings the Bible promises us today when we live a daily holy life in obedience to God and his son, Jesus. But before we dive into that scripture this morning, let's begin by dedicating to God this time and this opportunity to study his word. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your Bible, your holy book. God, we thank you that we can read it, we can study it. We thank you that it tells us exactly how to live holy lives set apart to do your will. And God, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to what you want to say to each one of us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So we have two points this morning to the sermon. It's 
The first point is family tragedy, and that's found in Genesis 9, 18 to 23. Follow along as I read those verses. This is what God's word says. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the, all, over the whole earth. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard, and when he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father's nakedness and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Jebeth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backward and covered their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father's nakedness. Now, this is the final section of the flood Toledot. The flood story is set in between references to Noah and his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. The sons are first mentioned in Genesis 5.32, again in Genesis 6.10, in Genesis 7.13, and finally here in Genesis 9. And this links them back to the genealogy of Adam and to before, during, and after the flood. The focus is shifting from Noah to his three sons. We're also given two new pieces of information that were not mentioned before. First, Ham is the father of Canaan. And this is evidence that the blessing of procreation that God reintroduced after the flood is already at work. The mention of Canaan is also important as it introduces the first hearers to a major character in the lives of the Israelites in the Old Testament. Second, the three sons of Noah will be the ones whom all peoples will come from that are scattered all over the earth. One of the reasons God saved Noah and his sons from the flood was so that the blessing would be passed down to all future generations. Next, we're introduced to a family's tragedy. Noah's called a man of the soil or the ground. And the ground has been significant in the early chapters of Genesis. Man is created from the ground, and the ground is cursed because of man's sin. The ground endures the punishment of the flood and has survived, and Noah and his sons have also survived the flood and are given a second chance along with the ground. Noah's livelihood is linked to the ground for which the blessing of food and drink have come from. Noah's come from a long line of farmers, including Adam, Cain, and his father Lamech. Noah, as the second Adam, seems to be fulfilling the original purpose of humanity in the garden. So as a farmer, Noah proceeds to plant a vineyard. Commentators are split as if, about if Noah was the first person to ever plant a vineyard. If so, they would contend that Noah probably didn't know what effects wine would have on his body. But there is that evidence that vineyards and the making of wine came before the flood. We could pretty well surmise that Noah knew exactly what he was doing when he grew and picked the grapes, pressed them, and waited for, them, for the juice to ferment. So after drinking the wine he, that Noah had made, he becomes drunk and lays uncovered in, un, inside his tent. Noah's drunkenness is not excused or condemned here, but it would have been disgraceful to be in that condition. This is the first of two incidents in Genesis that include drunkenness and both result in sin. And I can't imagine that, that Noah being drunk would have made God happy. And just because God doesn't address it doesn't mean it's okay. We're reminded of what God said before blessing Noah and his sons in chapter, uh, uh, at the end of chapter 8. 
that man is evil from childhood. Wyndham says the humanity that begins with Noah fully parallels with the humanity that preceded the flood. Noah's still human. Humanity is still sinful. The flood has not wiped sin out. And I think it's interesting that this story comes on the heels of blessing and covenant. We always need to be careful of Satan's attacks, especially right after a God moment that we have in our lives, because he will try to steal our joy every chance he gets. We also see that Noah is lying uncovered, which would have increased his disgrace in the eyes of the hearers. The Bible talks in various places about drinking to excess and the problems that could arise. And here, alcohol has caused Noah to become drunk, and he has exposed himself. And that is a disgrace not only to himself, but also to his family. Lastly, we see that Noah was inside his tent. That's important, because it would have been something entirely different if he was drunk and naked outside in public. We see a parallel here in that when Adam and Eve sinned, they knew they were naked. And Noah, in his sin and disgraceful condition, became naked. Next, we see what Ham does when confronted with his father's nakedness. Ham somehow sees his father lying uncovered inside his tent, meaning that he may have gone into his father's tent without permission. And that act alone would have been shown clear disrespect for his father. The word for Saul implies that he gazed or he took a long look. It seems that he had a certain satisfaction at seeing his father in his shameful condition. Once he noticed his father uncovered, the proper thing for him to do would have been to quietly cover him up. But there was something in the character of him that caused him not to do that. Instead, he goes outside and he tells his brother about what he saw. And literally, the text means that he told his brothers with delight. He seemed to have enjoyed, seemed to have enjoyed his father's shame and the embarrassment that it would cause. He may have relished the opportunity to gossip about righteous Noah. Ham shows blatant disrespect for his father again and again. And we're again reminded that Ham is the father of Canaan. And it would have alerted the first hearers to pay special attention. Ham shows his true character as he finds his brothers and gossips about his father's indiscretion. He's probably making fun of his father. And was trying to get his brothers to join into the fun of looking at his father's nakedness as well. We can notice a couple principles here. One, God's desire is for us to show respect to our parents. And two, God's desire is that we do not gossip about the sins of others. We need to be careful not to revel in, in others' sins because we are all sinful creatures. What Ham does reminds us of Eve in the garden. She saw that the fruit of the forbidden tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye. Eve ate the fruit and then gave some to Adam, who sinned as well. Ham saw his father's nakedness, made fun of it, and tried to entice his brothers to sin as well. But his brothers refused to be tempted and even did something about their father's condition. We need to be careful about what we allow our eyes to see. We could easily be tempted to sin by what we allow ourselves to look at. With our eyes, we are tempted to lust, to covet, etc. In Job 31, we see these words from Job. I have made a covenant with mine eyes to not look lustfully upon a young woman. And he says, my heart has been led by my eyes. 
Job understood that what he allowed his eyes to see could cause him to sin. He covenanted with his eyes to not let them look upon another with lust, and in doing so, keep his sinful desires at bay. We live holy lives by controlling what our eyes look at and not allowing those temptations to become sin live down in what we do. That brings us to the first next step on the back of your communication card this morning, which is to live a life of holiness by controlling what my eyes are allowed to see. So after being confronted with Sam's disrespect, Ham's disrespect, we see the decency that his brothers Shem and Jepheth have for their father's condition. They did not fall into the same temptation that Ham did. Scripture says they took a garment, laid it across their shoulders, and walked backwards to cover their father's nakedness. They showed decency in covering their father. But they also went above and beyond. They didn't even look at him in his disgraceful condition to be tempted by what they saw. They made sure their faces were turned the other way. Shem and Jepheth countered the sin of Noah by covering the uncovered. And they countered the sin of Ham by not seeing what Ham saw. This reminds us of God covering Adam and Eve in the garden after they sinned and found that they were naked. We need to remember that we're all sinful people. And the shame of our sin requires a covering just as Noah's did. And Jesus Christ is the only one who could cover our sin and shame. We can notice that more is said about what Shem and Jepheth did than what Ham did. And that's because we're to focus on their actions more. They covered their father's shame, honoring him by not looking at his nakedness and by not gossiping about it to others. These are the actions of people who knew what was right and did what was right. When we are loving people the way Jesus loves, we do not go around exposing their sin and encouraging others to make fun of them. That is not the way of holiness. Shem and Jepheth had seen their father's faith in the Lord as he built an ark, not knowing what rain probably even was. They'd watched their father's obedience as he did everything God commanded him. They learned about the worship of the Lord as they saw Noah build an altar and sacrifice burnt offerings on it to the Lord. They learned from their father how to live a holy life, and now they're exhibiting the kind of behavior necessary to do the same. This brings us to the second next step on the back of your communication card, which is to live a life of holiness by knowing what is right, which is found in God's word, and by doing what is right. Our second point this morning is called family prophecy, and that's found in Genesis 24, 9 verses 24 to 29. Follow along as I read those verses. Now Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him. He said, Cursed be Canaan. The lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend the territory of Jepheth. May Jepheth live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be his slave. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. Noah lived a total of 950 years, and then he died. When Noah wakes up from being drunk, he discovers what his youngest son had done to him. Noah may have heard the rumblings of family members outside, or maybe he went to his oldest son, Jepheth, and asked how he got covered up. 
But the result is that when Noah, who has not spoken in the entire narrative of his life in the Bible, finally speaks, his first words are a curse on his grandson Canaan. The word curse is used here only once. So it's probably more of a prophecy by Noah about his grandson. And it took the form of request to God, asking him to fulfill what Noah had said. This would have been different from a prophecy spoken by God, but it still would have carried weight. Wenham says, though it is not stated, Noah's words evidently had divine authority and affect the future. But why did Noah curse Canaan and not Ham? We need to go back to Ham's sin. Ham showed blatant disrespect for his father. And this would have been a very serious matter in Noah's time and, in the, and later in Israel as well. The punishment for insulting or disrespecting your parents could have been death. Disrespecting parents was not just a crime against them, but against God as well. Because it's showing contempt for those that he's put in authority over us. One of the Ten Commandments is honor your father and mother. Respect for parents was paramount. When we disrespect our parents, we start to see the downfall of the family itself. Satan's already been attacking the family. Adam and Eve's relationship would have been strained because of their sin. Cain kills his brother Abel. And we've seen the ungodliness passed down from Cain through his family to Lamech, who had multiple wives and boasted of killing someone. Satan again attacks the family as Ham is infected with contempt and disrespect for his father. And it brings a curse on his family, his son, and the generations to follow. You know, our families are being destroyed by sin, which is why it is so important that we live holy lives so our families will see it, can emulate it, and pass it on to the next generation who will be blessed by God. Cursing a person's son would have had the same effects as cursing the father because it would be cursing his future line. Noah has seen something in the character of his son that disturbs him. Ham's character was not formed in that instant, but had been formed in his entire life. Noah notices this and realizes that those character traits will be passed down to Ham's son, Canaan. In fact, Canaan would become the father of the Canaanite people, who were wicked and sexually immoral. Their wickedness and immorality was the reason why God gave their land over to the Israelites in the first place. The Israelites' hearers would have understood exactly why Noah cursed Canaan. They would have seen firsthand the evil and wickedness of the people who lived in the promised land before they did. And Noah's curse slash prophecy represented God's punishment of the sins of the Canaanite people, which Ham exemplified. The curse brought on Canaan was enslavement. He would be the lowest of slaves to his brothers. The enslavement to his brothers is mentioned a total of three times by Noah. Wenham says this threefold repetition of the curse makes it unusually emphatic. There could be no doubt about its fulfillment. Most commentators believe that this curse was fulfilled as the Israelites displaced the Canaanites from the promised land and eventually enslaved them during King David's reign. Now, the enslavement to Jephthah is hard to historically explain. But through this incident, God is warning the Jewish people not to compromise with the Canaanite way of life. And he's warning us here today, too. They would need to destroy anything and everything that would tempt them to sin as the Canaanites did. Lastly, the curse speak that Noah speaks on Canaan did not have anything to do with race. 
The Canaanites were not racially different from the Israelites or the other people they lived among. Next we see Noah turns from cursing to blessing. And notice that Noah doesn't bless Shem or Jepheth. He blesses the Lord, the God of Shem. This is the first time that God is referred to as a God of an individual in the Bible. Noah's reference to the Lord means that he was not a vengeful individual who was out of fellowship with God. And Noah recognizes that any blessing that Shem receives will come directly from the Lord. It reminds us that just as we've seen all throughout the narrative of Noah, that it is God who is the main character of the story. It's all about God, not about man at all. And Noah blesses God and asks that God bless Shem and Jepheth for their actions in showing dignity and decency to him. What are these blessings that Noah is asking for on their behalf? Shem receives the blessing of the firstborn as Noah asks for God to enrich him. And we notice that Shem's name is always mentioned first when the three sons are listed. This is another instance of God's grace given to the secondborn, as we've seen with Abel over Cain, and as we will see with Isaac over Ishmael, and Jacob over Esau. By calling the Lord the God of Shem, Shem is identified in terms of his relationship to God. It also means that Shem's line will be the elected line, just as Seth's line was, and just as Abraham's, Isaac's, and Jacob's will be. This is the line that Jesus Christ the Messiah will come from. Noah is prophesying about Shem's descendants, just as he has about Ham's. Noah also asked for God to bless Jepheth by enlarging his territory and allowing him to live in the tents of Shem. This blessing on Jepheth to be enlarged has seemed to be fulfilled as his descendants were those who settled west and north of Israel and included the Greek peoples and the Philistines. His descendants also reached as far as Asia Minor, Europe, and finally to the Americas. The descendants of Jepheth are, are us today. If you look at present-day maps, we see that descendants of Jepheth have settled more land than Ham's descendants, who went to Africa, and Shem's descendants who settled in the Promised Land, which is by far the smallest land area of the three. Most commentators struggle to explain the blessing of Jepheth living in the tents of Shem. It may mean that their descendants will live peacefully with each other. More likely, it means that the God of Shem will be the God of Jepheth as well. Jepheth will benefit from the spiritual blessing of being united with Shem's God. God was said to dwell or pitch his tent with his people, the Israelites. God's presence was in the Holy of Holies, in the tent of meeting in the wilderness, and in the tabernacle in Jerusalem. In John 1.14a, it says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Literally, Jesus, the Word, became a man and dwelled or tented among us. And now the Holy Spirit dwells within each person who is a Christ follower. This happened because it was Shem's descendants, the Jewish people that Jesus came from. And his word was spread by his disciples to the Gentiles. Shem means name. The blessing of Shem is seen in the fact that God would reveal his saving name to the world through him. God would use Shem's descendants to bring divine revelation and salvation through Jesus Christ to the world. And lastly, we're again reminded of the genealogy of Adam found in Genesis 5 as we finish the flood Toledot. 
The 10 generations that started with Adam are now finished. And we will now embark on the next 10 generations, which will take us from Shem to Abraham and the covenant that God will make with him. It says Noah lived another 350 years after the flood, and he lived a total of 950 years. But we notice the phrase, he fathered other sons and daughters from chapter 5 is missing. This makes it clear that all mankind after the flood has descended from these three brothers, Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. We also notice that just like all his ancestors before him, except for Enoch, it says, and then he died. This phrase again reminds us of our humanity and our sin. Our humanity has been exposed time and time again, and it will continue to be exposed, but God's blessing is also alive, and nothing will stop his blessing from being passed down until the end of time as we know it. So we've seen the blessings that Shem and Jebeth received from living holy lives. And we've seen those blessings being passed down to their descendants as well. And as Christians, we can receive blessings from God if we are living holy lives. In living a holy life, God wants to and does lavish more blessings on us than we can even imagine. Here are just a few of the blessings we receive from living a holy life. Psalm 15, 1 and 2a says this. Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? The one whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous. Holiness brings an intimacy with God and helps us grow spiritually. 2 Peter 3.14 says this. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, which is Jesus' return, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Holiness brings us peace with God. 2 Timothy 2.21 says, Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful and effective for God's purposes. You know, it's a blessing to be used by God for his purposes. And holiness makes us useful and effective for those purposes. Galatians 5.22 and 23 tells us of the fruit that we can have when we are living holy lives and listening to the Holy Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These fruits are evident when we're living holy lives. In fact, we cannot do these things very well if we're not living holy lives. And Ephesians 1.3 says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. The spiritual blessings we receive when we are living the holy life are sanctification, forgiveness, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which gives us insight and power to do God's will, and finally, eternal life with Jesus. There's so many more blessings we receive when we are living holy lives that we do not want to miss out on any of these blessings, which brings us to our last next step on the back of your communication card, which is to live a life of holiness and receive the blessings that God has for me. As Gina Roxy come to lead us in a final song, let's bow our heads and close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that we would strive to live holy lives set apart for your special purposes for each one of us. I pray that we would covenant with our eyes, that we would keep them from seeing those things that would cause us to be tempted to sin.
I pray that we would study your word so that we would know what, is, what the right way to live is and then we would proceed to live that right way. I pray that as we live holy lives, you would lavish your blessings upon us for your honor and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.